Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine at Derby County Football Club, Luke Jenkinson. Tune in to episode 242 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to bring on good friend of mine and newly appointed uh, Head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine at Derby County Football Club, Luke Jenkinson. So Luke came on in episode 60, I think. I think it was 60, um, which was well over three years ago, at which time he was at Sheffield United working the academy. A lot's changed since then. So Luke's just been appointed in his new role. And in this episode, we discuss the benefits of early specialization in a late specialization sport. That can be quite misleading though. Um, So make sure you do listen to the first half of the podcast quite carefully, because that probably misconstrues what we're actually going to discuss in the first part. However, in the second part, we discuss uh, lots around Luke's doctorate work, which is using isometric training in the academy at Derby. So really interesting chat on that side of things and why uh, Luke thinks that isometric training can play a big part in the development of the uh, the players at Derby. So really interesting chat on both fronts in terms of the specialized, early specialization and the isometric training. So it'll be a, an episode that I'm sure you'll really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Iron Measure U. So Iron Measure U is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So Iron Measure U recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So IMSU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about IMSU, head over to the website imsu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at IMSU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Luke Jenkinson. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast this evening. I'm delighted to welcome good friend 
and newly appointed Head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine at Derby County Academy, Luke Jenkinson. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Good evening, Rob. Thanks for uh, having me on again. And uh, I'm sure the listeners will um, appreciate my dulcet northern Yorkshire tones for uh, another time. Absolutely. Bring it on. So it was, um, what, three years ago since episode 60. That's right. And a lot's lot's changed since then. Pray for both of us. Um, I was going to say I was going grey, but as a ginger, I don't think I go grey, which is probably a definitely a positive but um just want to give us a bit of a overview of pretty including back then as well just where you know all the, the background where you've come from education wise then we'll move through the chef united days and then what you're doing at derby at the minute yeah absolutely so I, I don't want to go over all ground but i think there is some points that we've discussed perhaps in my history of getting to where i am today that we've not spoken about before so Initially, I finished my A-levels and I was meant to be going to university to do quantity surveying, um, but that was around the housing crash. So I decided to go and work in sales for a period. And that actually ended up, I worked, well, I was very successful in sales at very young and I actually went and worked for Lloyd's TSB um, as a personal bank manager. So I was the youngest bank manager um, in the country for Lloyd's TSB. And the reason why I picked this in particular is like, I know I listened to Dan Cleaver speak recently and he went through his, his banking background and I certainly wasn't at that, that level, but going through nine months of, of training ultimately in sales was very much around understanding communication and people and building relationships, which at the time I didn't really realize would, would hold me in good stead now as a coach. So I basically worked for them for 18 months. Um, At 21 years old, I felt like I was really old and I was going to end up stuck in sales for the rest of my life. So wanted to pursue a career in something that I loved. And that was, at the time, um, just weight room training. Um, And I picked up this desire to know more than anyone in the in my local weight room amongst my peers and to go and read around the physiology and the background to optimize training and performance um, and then I went to the University of Derby in 2009 where I did my undergraduate along that time I was interning with Sheffield United um, which was full-time in my third year and I set myself the target to leave my undergraduate with a full-time job um, a first-class degree in UKSA accreditation which I did um, I then went and worked um, at Sheffield United for a couple of years before starting my Master's of Research at the um, University of Derby again, where I went more down a sports science route with my thesis and I critiqued um, the acute chronic workload ratio and some of the work um, done by Tim Gabbert. Um, and then alongside of that, I when I finished that, I became Associate Lecturer in Strength and Conditioning again at the University of Derby, working and supporting the program uh, designed by James Keenan. Um, and I'm now just over a year into my doctorate at Liverpool John Moores University, being supervised by um, Tom Brownlee, Dave Clark and Barry Drust. Um, and I'm looking to investigate the role of isometric training in dynamic sports, which I know is something that we're going to talk about um, later on. Absolutely. So it's really interesting to hear the background of people. I think this is this is probably one of the 
most interesting parts of doing the podcast is actually seeing and hearing where people have the kind of different routes people have taken. Tom Bachelor again, another one who at Harlequins, I think he's on your yeah, off doc, is he? Yeah, Tom? He's in, in the same cohort yeah. himself. Yeah, so going down the banking route, obviously Dan going down the banking route. But it's interesting that that's them sales that sales training, that sales experience, and you mentioned the communication and actually dealing with people. But is is that? I mean, I know it's easy to say, and you know that that's what's kind of set me up in terms of what I've learned to to help me in this field in this industry. But what actually, what specifically was it that you took from that time? And even if it's just reflective, going, I don't want to do that again. But is it what what else was taken from that time that you've brought forward into? what you do now yeah it, it certainly was very much i didn't want to be in an office 100 percent of my sort of working career and life um there was also some got really deep some ethical issues that i had with the whole process of working in, in sales that, that that won't be delved into now and at the time i didn't realize that that nine months of training was going to sort of set me up uh, to to where i am now and as as we touched upon it was really just about building relationships and almost having like a client base and and our client base, just my wife's a personal trainer and a nutritionist. She has her own private clients. And that's how I sort of see all of the athletes that I work with. Yes, they are athletes at Derby County Football Club, but each one of those is my individual client. And I need to offer them a service that is optimal for them uh, and keeps their buying and level uh, of trust in the process and the program and the curriculum that they're being exposed to. So I'd certainly say like this understanding of, of value of the people that you're working with and not just taking for granted there are athletes, they work for me or my athletes or however you want to term it, that actually that they're clients of mine and that I need to develop relationships, I need to develop rapport, I need to understand what makes athlete x tick or what's his motivation then how that's different to another athletes and how my communication and, and, and actually breaks down some of the initial barriers to build rapport and to build trust and buy into the program ultimately i think that's a big thing in terms of when people come through the personal training route because you've got to do that otherwise because people don't have to be there like you're the guys at the club or any club they turn up because they're told to be there. But when you get clients, they don't have to be there. So you're either a dick and they leave or you're all right and they stay. Absolutely. So it's a, you, you sink or swim in that scenario. And I sort of feel like that's vital for us to develop an environment where, where our athletes really trust and buy into us as support staff and how we can harness their performance and hopefully accelerate performance when it comes to 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning or 3 p.m. Um, at Wembley, for example, depending on which athlete you're working with at what stage of their career they're at. And you do some competition prep as well. Is that, that still right? going on? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, well, my parents were bodybuilders. Uh, my initial love for training came from bodybuilding. I have a real interest in the natural and um shall we say enhanced bodybuilding as a sport and their manipulation of exercises for desired outcome there's some extremely clever um practitioners that coaching at the top levels and yes so i'm currently working with um, a couple of international uh, female natural um, athletes that um, for me is just a hobby and i, I really enjoy 
programming um, for them alongside my work and that that relationship that we have is very very close and for me these people are 24-hour athletes that that literally dedicate their life and their employment to to the pursuit of an aesthetic um, as well as athletic uh, performance and goals so yeah um, I I I love working with those two and they're they're two long-term athletes that I've been working with and as I say, they're now competing at international level and have both got good futures ahead of them in the game. Do you think that strand of your professional life helps the the, the professional side at, at, at Derby? Yeah, the, yeah, especially from a perspective of understanding having almost products or having documentation or having ways of working remotely uh, and even just real soft skills of having programs shared on phones for example or checking documentations um, and, and I find to be invaluable that especially if we're working real in depth with a specific athlete whether that's hypertrophy whether that's strength whether that's nutritionally I already have a lot of those documentations set up um, that I've used personally and then it makes that communication between the two of us outside of, of the training ground a, a lot more seamless nice let's get into the meat of it what we're going to chat about so one of the main areas that I wanted to or we wanted to chat about was benefits of early specialization in late specialization sport and that's something that, something that we'd chatted about beforehand when we're lining up things to um Bruce to go down in preparation for this podcast why why was it something that you wanted to chat about and what are your general thoughts around it once we get that we can dive a little bit deeper yeah I think so of course we spoke three years ago and, and we spoke about the benefits of late specialization and at no point am I arguing against late specialization just to to caveat before we start off with them ultimately a lot of this my philosophies and the questioning of training came from when I was introduced to Nick Cox, who was my old boss that's now at Manchester United, that really challenged me to think about the way that we coach as performance staff um, and how it was not aligned to coaching philosophy, so technical tactic coaching, coaching philosophy, and, and why that was. And ultimately, I felt like at the time, so when I did my undergraduate in 2009, and, and I refer back to what I'll call more traditional strength and conditioning, I think that the academic and also informal platform of education is becoming more um, appropriate for practitioners, especially in working in academies and in soccer or working in pediatric strength and conditioning specifically. And I felt like that there was a disconnect and I was coaching, and I will term it almost uh, from a political sense, I was extremely left-wing. It was all very straight lines. It was all very coach-led. It was all very prescriptive. It was all very, let's call boring. It was all very micromanaging. It was all very closed loop. And Nick challenged my thinking and challenged my thoughts. And he was a huge influence on me as a practitioner. Um, And I went drastically right-wing. And over the past three years, we've seen how non-Lydian pedagogy has become much more of a accepted methodology uh, within clubs of developing youth athletes. And I certainly think that it is the case. However, 
after three years, I've looked back and I've reflected upon how my coaching philosophy has changed. And I've actually started to look at myself now and go, have I actually lost the opportunity of some of the benefits of early specialization? Did I just go become almost a bit of a zealot and just went completely right wing and disregarded a lot of the benefits of what were harnessed in my previous self or my previous ideas? And that brought me to where I am today. Um, so how that looks day to day programming is not hugely different but how we have elements of the program that are a little bit more specific are a little bit more closed loop and we'll touch upon it as we, as we work through but that's sort of where my, my ideas went were the opportunities that we know that these young footballers or these young athletes should I say I don't want to call them young footballers at some point are going to have to become highly skilled at specific technical and tactical movements. And from a performance perspective, if I'm going to harness and enhance their physiological capabilities, then we need to have a skill set that they are extremely developed at so that we can then overload and that we can create physiological and neurological adaptations. Because if we don't become highly skilled at these elements, then am I actually going to be changing architecture or am I just going to be improving skill? And this is where my, my main question came around was actually what physiological adaptations were taking place from a performance perspective and had I lost some of those in the pursuit of of play uh, and the benefits of late specialization, which I'm certainly not disregarding at all. But I think that, again, from what I've seen at social media, again, that some we've almost gone a little bit too far to the right and it's just got a little bit too informal or it's become a little too informal too much of the time, I'd say. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too wishy-washy and we will get into the, the meat of it as we go but basically my, my my thoughts or my political stance have swung from all the way from the left all the way to the right and now I'd probably say I'm a bit of a middle right and um, if I was going to put it in that sense that's exactly what I was going to say and is this just a natural swing of going all in on one in one corner swinging all the way to the other corner and then actually reassessing getting a little bit more experience a little bit more I suppose critique of your own practice and then probably find yourself somewhere in the middle yeah and absolutely. I guess that's what always happens yeah and that, that's where I am and as I say I'm now in my 10th year of coaching strength and conditioning and I certainly I look back at elements of my program as we all do and I've I, I laugh at it and it's certainly to a point now where I, I feel like that 10 years in or on and eight years of that being full-time is for me to say actually this is now I can see the the landscape a little clearer um and, and that i can solidify th this this way of pediatric athletic development that does harness some of the elements of early specialization but is, is a pretty much a gross multi-sport um late specialization curriculum and we also then need to understand the constraints of the program that we're working in now if you're in a, a program and let's say that you've got an hour and a half a week with an athlete actually by just engaging in these typical multi-sport like games how much of a transfer or how much of that is offsetting the previous what they're doing the rest of the time and actually should we be 
looking to develop the level of engagement or fun or or motivation to engage in other sports at school away from the building because actually that one and a half hours a week don't get me wrong is a positive step and we should be taking a, a large chunk of that time to engage in other sports uh, we should be flooding half terms breaks um, and and i'm not certainly not saying that that isn't the case but actually within that time, how are we going to really get the most bang for our buck and develop some of these these performance elements? And, and ultimately what I'm going to come down to is the ability to apply and absorb force and to develop a, a strength basis from a physiological and a neurological perspective. Is it a case of putting all that aside and actually evaluating what these young athletes are getting in the rest of their lives and then plug in the gap. So if they're getting all of, all of one thing and none of another, surely it's the none of the other that we sh- we should be kind of taking the hit on our own, not philosophy, but own thoughts towards how things should be done and go, okay, my time, it may only be an hour and a half a week or an hour or whatever people get and focusing on that area rather than trying to still implement what we believe, even though that might be actually covered in a technical training session the coach is providing on a Monday night. Is that how we should be viewing it? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, that's where you speak about where we have this dedicated, like, our time in speech marks and then football time. Actually, I'm looking for our coaches to be more engaged in that training session, to be working closer with the the coaching staff with the technical tactical staff to be involved in sessions to actually make to make improvements during coaching sessions therefore because we do have limited time across every academy in the country how again can we make the most uh, out of that time and ultimately going back to the the the, uh, first point of, of that section there rob was Yes, we do need to plug the gaps, absolutely. And we need to remember that this journey that the players are going through is one that is valuable to them and an experience that is that is seen of value because we do know that the numbers are going to suggest that you are more likely to, let's say, fail if making a pro career is the only goal, then we need to offer more than that, that the journey has to be more valuable and the journey needs to be enjoyed because if you're walking into a building at nine years old and you're going to make your um, debut at 19 you've got a decade of you you need some stimulation during that period because even as uh, as staff walking into the same environments it does become repetitive and it does you the motivation does dwindle so a lot of the benefits of that late specialization and the variation and engaging in different sports and exposing our athletes to different stimuli is is hugely beneficial and dave hembra speaks a lot about this with regards to pediatric work is uh, regarding the the social and physical elements of of late specialization and non-linear pedagogy so I, i certainly do feel like there is there is huge benefits and that we did discuss that three years ago and that still does remain and 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 you can't take that away from the process so in terms of your day-to-day at Derby and the role of all the things that we chatted about three years ago in terms of play, introduction of different sports, taking the guys off-site to do different activities, trampolining, gymnastics, rock climbing, etc. 
is that still are you still implementing that is it a lesser to a lesser extent because of how your thought thinking has changed um yes and no i'd say um that those elements are still the fundamental base of our program um if we're talking about the foundation phase so with our nines to elevens um we will have two primary sessions a week uh, one of those would that we will turn almost general prep and one of them will be specific prep that general prep session will be very much more of a multi-sport based element um, in there we see a lot of elements of gymnastics for example we see a lot of examples of other invasion evasion sports we see elements of, of basic judo and grappling and wrestling uh, and basically the manipulation of an athlete's own body. And that's my only aim in, in that phase is for our athletes to master their body, easier said than done, uh, and to master their body weight. So to be able to deal with their own body weight and to understand where it is in time and space and to be adaptable and reactive to that. Now, how that looks from individual to individual is very different. And I'm also going to say from position to position. Uh, and by that, I just mean those that score goals, those that create goals and those that uh, block goals. Um, so that's the elements that we're looking to, to really develop through that phase. The more specific uh, session of the week, that perhaps where I'm now sort of moving slightly back towards the middle and we're starting to see elements of more formal um, sessions that look to improve those basic squat, push, pull, hinge, um, brace. How we deliver those is still being utilised through the, this sort of late specialisation model. Can we almost create some disguised coaching through that? But I certainly feel like that we need to ensure that our athletes aren't just a session isn't put on and just let let go. For example. Um, and, and the more that we can get uh, the technical, tactical coaches along beside us is, is crucial. Um, just for us to be able to use the same language as those guys, for us to understand, especially at the foundation phase, what does fast look like? What does good movement look like? How do we actually make tangible changes to, to outcome and performance for those guys on, on a Sunday morning? Um, and, and just even creating sessions that that are embedded in movement problems and movement challenges um almost utilizing some of the games that you'll see if you go on like a team building event and you've got sort of you're at an outdoor center and you've just got problems to deal with we'll often set these up and we'll i will just literally stand uh with, with our coaches and just we'll start picking up on who are the leaders who are the ones that don't want to problem solve who are the ones that just get led really easy who are the ones that want to speak out and don't actually make that jump so then how can we facilitate that within the session how does that transfer then into their football coaching are those same traits and characters come out of that session so again there is still this huge social psychological uh, element to, to our sessions that i think that we have a a responsibility to to ensure occur because again football for a lot of these guys if we look at our uh, philosophy um, as an academy uh, our academy director just wants our players to love Derby County Football Club and love coming to Moor Farm and love playing football therefore for me these these opportunities to work with ourselves outside of football for those younger guys won't have happened at grassroots level so then it can't be monotonous it can't be dull 
It has to be a mental break from school and this formal environment that they've been put in all day that we shouldn't then just be replicating. But at the same time, we've also got to balance that and understand that we have the challenge to improve them athletically as well. So what is the best way of going about that? And for me, that's where I've fallen now is this middle right that I keep referring to it as. With the more informal stuff that goes on at the, at the club and with the introduction of the Triple P, and you obviously know plenty more about the Triple P than I do, but in terms of the evidence of the the KPIs that are set, whether the kids are actually achieving these, and all obviously giving evidence of potentially why this kid was let go, why this kid was kept on, how difficult is it to actually justify the inclusion of that less formal, them less formal activities because they are less formal in in nature, and it's harder to actually pin. Like, can can they in a, in a technical drill? You're doing a passing drill. Can they pass from? Are they good at long passing? Yes, they are because I've seen him get from there to there, and he can do it. Very simple example, but obviously that's slightly different when you're in a judo session and you're saying he needs to be able to master his body better. Well, that's a very subjective, fluffy thing. How do you go about evidencing that? Is that tough? Yeah, no, yeah, it absolutely is tough. It's really not as simple as the objective of, let's say, he's going through an A skip and his femur's parallel to the floor, his heel's tucked in, he's got a nice tall posture and he's armed at 90 degrees. That suddenly becomes quite an easy way to score someone. And I've done that previously, but I also found that that then didn't, bridge the the gap to performance and that we didn't see the transfer and that there was just some elements of learning becoming more trained at a closed loop skill that didn't transfer so how we go about it is that I challenge all of our full-time coaches that so in particular with our foundation phase um, all the way through to uh, our 9 to 16 program all full-time staff coach um, we're blessed that we have the support and backing um, of the club to have highly skilled and qualified staff working alongside us and some people that are very passionate about developing young athletes so how we will go about that is um, a regular uh, reflection with the coaches so again I can't keep re-emphasizing enough how important it is to have the coaches alongside you um, through these informal conversations, picking up that player X is struggling with this on a Sunday, therefore what's happening here. Um, and after each session that we will ensure that we feed back about three players and we will write notes based on three players after each session. Therefore, over a six-week cycle, we will ensure that we've discussed each of those players so if you go over a six-week cycle, if you're talking um, at least three a session, you've, you're going to have 18 discussion points over that time. That's, that's something that we could then can reflect on with, um, with our coaches in the multidisciplinary meetings that occur every week. Um, and then a part of the formal EPPP basis of six and 12-week reviews um, that, that, that they come into those aspects. But for, for me, it's again, it's about the relationship with coaches and for us to be able to use the same language and for us to understand when they say, oh, I can't move. Well, that, that's a real, again, subjective. What does that actually mean? What does that look like? And what does good movement look like? And what are we striving to, to for? And, and for me, that's what we as um, conditioners or performance staff need to be educating and not just coming from us. And then when I say educating, I mean having an open platform. So we performed a, a task recently where I went to 
um, a representative from every department, including the first team, and basically said to them, what does good movement look like to you? And we basically just created a storyboard. And that's something that then can go to recruitment. That's something that can go to our coaching staff. And that then sets us at almost a gold standard of what we're working towards. Now, if there's a case and we're in these these multi-sport or open, chaotic environments, that the stimuli may be just too great for an athlete to be able to um, learn a new skill or to focus on a specific element that we're working on. Therefore, just as we would in a football coaching session, we would then move down uh, the coaching ladder and move towards more closed skills um, and where we're going to take stimuli away so we can focus on the task at hand. Um, so we very much take a, a top-down approach opposed to the other way, but that's in line with with our coaching philosophy as well. So that's mirrored on pitch and off pitch, shall we call it. That storyboard, what did that look like? What is that, is that on a, a whiteboard that's kind of everyone uses? What does that look like in practice so people can get a bit of a picture of, of what's yeah, going on there? It's basically, it was just, uh, it made it look so... I used a picture that, for me, is the pictures or depict, should I say, movement, and it's just um, a flock of swifts moving um, over Edinburgh Castle, um, a special place for myself, and then we just wrote around that, so words such as effortless or streamline or no specific uh, deficiencies or it's adaptable. And then underneath all of those, I just wrote the person's job title. So then we can see all the way across the club from the first team doctor to the head physio to our first team uh, fitness coach, all the way down to our foundation phase recruitment guy. What does this look like? And almost just as a constant message of how, how difficult it is. And it's not always tangible. Therefore, we need to have specific words or categories in our mind that we're, we're working towards or we're striving to create or we're looking to recruit. So it's going to take a very quick break in the chat with Luke. Hope you're enjoying part one. So as I mentioned at the start, in part two, we discuss a lot around Luke's doctorate work and a lot around isometric training. So this is a really, really, really interesting part two with Luke and why he thinks isometric training can play a big part in the athletic development of the young athletes at Derby County Football Club. Exactly why he thinks that and some really cool examples of how that's actually working in practice. So fantastic part two coming up. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAF model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device. But not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit 
is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by a medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. Well, I just want to move on to another topic, which was um, some of your doctorate work. So I've been into the club and seen how passionate you are in terms of the isometric training and the, the, some of the stuff that you're doing in the academy. Firstly, why did you go down this route? That, firstly, why did you go down the route of the doctorate and not a PhD, not a traditional PhD route? Um, and then we'll get into the isometric training, but why, why the doctorate in the first place? Yeah, so originally I was going to down, go down the route of a traditional PhD. Um, it was actually, we were... Um, it was Dave Carolan and, and Jonas Dodu, who was a consultant at the club at the time that proposed uh, the professional doctorate to me. Um, if I'm honest with you, I wasn't fully aware of the process at the time. Um, but then through discussions with Barry Drust, um, it sort of felt like it really fitted me in the situation that I'm in. Uh, and one thing that Barry discusses in, in, in huge depth is that Research isn't always black and white. It's not always done in a lab. And actually, there is a lot of high-quality work being conducted across the applied world that's, that doesn't always necessarily meet the traditional educational model. Therefore, Barry's, Barry um, and Zoe have created a, a, a program that is designed for practitioners and full-time practitioners that are in clubs, and as we say, there's a whole array of people that are in my cohort, all the way from Tom, for example, at Harlequins. We also have a retired athletics coach. We have a nutritionist. We have a guy that works in scouting. So it's a great network of people to be working alongside. But ultimately, for me, it just enabled me to formalize my thoughts and my practices that I had in an applied world and to really test those uh, in, in an academic manner, but understanding that, that the applied world isn't always pretty, it isn't always nice, and actually conducting research in these environments is highly, um, we can disseminate it really easily to practitioners across the country. And as we can see over the 10 years that I've, I've been in strength and conditioning now is it's becoming uh, an ever-growing um, 
environment and therefore that we we should be helping each other and sharing our ideas and our practices and i felt like the doctor really uh, enabled mm-hmm. nice so moving on to the isometric training why why was that an area of focus for you and why was it such a an interest and then we'll and then if you wouldn't mind just give us a bit of an overview of how you use isometric training at the club and how that's now forming the base of the doctorate yeah so Again, this comes back to what we've uh, previously spoken about and this disconnect about actually what are my programs doing to change the physiological performances of our our athletes, uh, no matter what the age were. And I, I got to this point where I was thinking about strength and conditioning in soccer in the UK and I sort of said that this was my, my main premise where my question came from. So I was saying we've, we've got a sport that has weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, evenly weighted uh, competitions. We have athletes that are able to produce high levels of force, um, that are elite athletes, and but some of these aren't um, – don't have the training history or don't have the desire or don't have the buy-in for traditional strength training and that working with bodybuilders, working with powerlifters, we know that if we're going to create architectural adaptation, there needs to be a high level of skill. There needs to be a high level of buy-in to this process. It takes time and that isn't always available in the constraints of the environment that we're working in. From a youth element, what I what my thinking was is that we have this, if you imagine a traditional X, Y axis on a graph, is that we have force-producing capabilities, and this is a horizontal line pretty high up on the, on the graph. And that over time we see, and this is a very basic example, is that we see squat strength improving. Oh, it's gone from 35 kilos at the start of the season. Now mid-season we're at 45 and now suddenly we're at 60 kilos by the end of the season. So I can certainly say that their skill at that task of i.e. squatting has improved. But has that line of improvement actually ever broken the physiological capabilities of their force-producing um, physiology? Therefore, am I actually losing the opportunity to create an overload stimulus? Am I losing the opportunity to actually create some tangible architectural adaptation? Or have I just become better at the skill and the task? Therefore, when I reflected back over my program, I could safely say is we've, we've got better at these skills and we understand that it's not we can't question again that improving squat, lunging, hinging is certainly a benefit to long-term athletic development. And I'm certainly not going to question that at all, that dynamic mobility, specific joint flexibility, mastery of body weight and fundamental movement is paramount. But at the same time, we're also being challenged to make Joe Bloggs quicker. Can he change direction better? Can he jump better? Therefore, that we know that force-producing capabilities and the ability to apply and absorb force are crucial to this. Therefore, were my programs actually addressing this or were we just getting better at some very basic general prep exercises and not overloading them? So this is where it brought me to the, the idea is could I create or could I develop a program 
that really utilized high force, low skill exercises that could create, in particular, neurological adaptation as the gatekeeper to force producing capabilities of the contractile elements. And could I then look to use this newfound uh, capabilities to to really push our skill level uh, in, in our traditional strength training, as I refer to it, uh, below that. So that's sort of where my, my, my thought processes came from. Um, I was very fortunate at the time. So at the back end of 2017, we were the first um, soccer club or football club, sorry, to keep calling it soccer. Um, <laughs> just, uh, um, when you write in academic stuff, it has to be referred to as soccer. So um, when... I know, when- I thought exactly... Yeah, I thought that's the reason for it. I'll lay him off. So lay him off wrong, but you know, as a Yorkshireman, it's definitely football. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, that um, that we we were the first club to take um, the use of Kangatech. So that's where it's a tool for isometric training. Um, I know a lot of people will be au fait with the groin bar from Valve, for example. Um, and Kangatech is a, a another product that offers the ability to uh, train isometrically across, I think it's just over 30 different uh, exercises now. And it's something that we have used uh, and developed a lot with. And I basically have a, a well, I, the team at Derby County, um, amongst myself, uh, Adam Burrows, James Evans, and a few of the other staff, uh, we have a data set of over 3,000 tests of isometric strength, ranging all the way from 12 years old through to the first team. So we're actually looking at how um, strength changes with, alongside maturation, but also how we how our training programs uh, are um, the if they're working, but also how the relationships to, between agonists and antagonists are changing over time. Uh, and there's some interesting findings around that, especially in terms of adduction and, ad- and abduction work. Um, but we know that isometric training gives us um, the most reliable compared to dynamic training, um, a way of assessing strength. Um, so we're using this at both low MVIC to test and uh, train asymmetries in rehabilitation, but we're also using this with um our fully fit athletes for uh, joint-specific, high-force uh, um, isometric work. So, yeah, not just Kangatech, but there is some of the work um, with, like, ISO pushers that were very much popularised. I know Alex Natera has spoken extensively about, and such as the work of Chris Corfitz as well. So these are some of the, the elements that we're, we're utilising. But, and I missed this out, when we come back to this traditional strength training, if I don't have the um, motivation, if I don't have the buy-in, if I don't have the skill, absolutely should, we should be working on that. And that should be a constant through our program. But my thoughts were, are we actually missing an opportunity to create some of these architectural changes? Therefore, how can I go about this? And in particular, we see that with traditional strength training that we have a a greater fatiguing effect. Therefore, if you've certainly got bi-weekly, but certainly weekly, how many opportunities do you have to perform traditional strength training with athletes that if they do have a low training age or do have a low strength um, in, in in a certain skill, then we know that 
fatigue is going to be greater. And we've also then got to uh, manage where that's spaced in terms of games. Therefore, my, my reading and my understanding and going through the literature review for isometric training, we know that we can actually perform these more frequently without the fear or worry of, of um, that some of those fatiguing elements. So we can expose them to high levels of force more frequently. Excellent. So... How does that look day to day? And it'd be great to get a bit of an overview, not an overview, but a, uh, a snapshot of each kind of maybe um, academy phase and how that differs across across each phase and then how the integration happens in the, between what you call traditional um, exercises. What does it actually look like in the uh, Derby County Academy? Yeah, so if we start off by talking with our um, full-time players, um, again, so through our testing, if we have anyone that's outside of 10% uh, asymmetry, we'll be performing daily low MVIC work. So that will um, involve them uh, starting off by performing at 30% of their maximal voluntary isometric contraction for sets of 10-second holds. Um, we see, and there is very little data on this, but anecdotally, and there is some work um, over in Japan um, that, if I'm honest with you, is rather questionable study um, design, but at the same point we're seeing this anecdotally, is that we see that these changes in asymmetry reduce very, very quickly. Again, anecdotally, we've then seen from force platform work that these asymmetries also reduce dynamically. And, and this is basically the premise of, of my doctorate is that can we use isometric strength training because uh, we know that it's joint specific, but if we can actually train throughout the range, so let's go at a very basic level, short, medium and long, um, does that then transfer to full dynamic performance? So that's ultimately what I'm testing and my final study is an intervention based around that. But with our older guys going back to the original question is that we will use um, isometrics so for asymmetries we'll also use the match day uh, plus two uh, we will get uh, subjective scores of effort we also through the system get a score of control uh, and time in zone so that's almost a quality of the muscular contraction so we can look at that then to um look at fatigue at the moment our data battery for that isn't huge so we're not going to put all our eggs in that basket about the use of that but that's that becomes a gateway for us to have useful conversations with our athlete and they're able to the system's very gamified they're very engaged we run three systems at the club and the players know how to set them up and crack on and work on their own and they're happy to do that um Match day plus two, we will use them again for, um, we get an analgesic effect from uh, low MVIC work. So match day plus two, potential for a level of soreness. So at end of our pre-activation session, uh, before the players go out onto the pitch, uh, we will do some low MVIC work. Then um, with our performance programs, so within a traditional one game week, we will see traditional strength training used, um, on uh, twice a week and then there will be points where we will uh, be utilizing isometrics with specific cases um, that may be uh, an example we may be looking at an iso push so some 
uh, gastroc and soleus work uh, and the transfer of force throughout the the whole um, system with someone that's potentially had um, previous calf injuries or is reporting of calf, t- calf tightness throughout a game. Therefore, we'll, we will have specific targets of two and a half times body weight, for example, for them to be able to achieve peak force. And then we will also have some, some capacity elements um, that we will look to train and test um, as, as part of that. Again, we will, with our full-time players, if we have a period of a midweek game to a Saturday game, we will then use um, some battery of high MVIC work. So that may look um, of like a single leg squat, for example. Um, so yielding exercises and overcoming exercises where we're either pushing against an object that can't move or when we're bracing against a, a load that, that we can't move concentrically. Um, and we will look to utilize those pre-training. So on our stiffness and power days, um, that's certainly something that, that's, that's a large part of our program and that, that runs all the way through our full-time program at the club. So in terms of, in terms of results on the back of this, I'm guessing this is obviously where the doctorate's going, but what kind of results are you seeing, again, going back to what we spoke about before in terms of the academy and transferring this onto the pitch, what are you seeing in terms of that um, transfer it's, yeah it's quite interesting because we see a natural shall we say undulation throughout the season with the management of fatigue so we have that to also consider with our te- isometric testing of, from our 12s to our under 16s for example we've then also got to take into consideration of that these guys are just getting um stronger because they're growing they're getting older therefore we're tracking closely how this this uh, progression is seen and across those age groups we see a pretty linear um, development in terms of um, isometric strength capabilities and then we are also seeing that transfer onto force platform work through bilateral count movement jumps single leg count movement jumps drop jumps, and then the metrics that we see uh, from there, um, such as impulse, for example. Um, so for me, where my thinking comes along is that these have given us the opportunity to really apply some of these younger athletes to for them to produce force as, as maximally as they can, which whilst they don't have the skill level to be able to do that um, necessarily in traditional strength training, was that a missed opportunity for us to have exposed them to? Has that has the ISO training helped in the development of their um, traditional strength training in terms of actually getting them through the bad technique to enhance that bad technique? That makes yeah, sense. and I certainly feel like uh, from a, um, a subjective perspective, it's given the, them the knowledge of what hard work is and what maximal force looks like, and whether that's on Kangatech or whether that's on on Forstex, for example, having that um, instant feedback is vital for them, and it gives them some objective elements to be working towards. So, like the the system on Kangatech puts their previous best scores on there. We have thresholds in there, the targets that we're working towards. So there's external motivations for them to be really producing these high levels of force that we then see 
let's just go adduction, for example, with that we then see uh, through our Copenhagen program is that we've seen greater progressions through that program. And at the moment, that is just correlation, uh, but that's part of my doctorate process to go, is that correla- correlation actually causation? Uh, uh, and do we see this, this transfer to dynamic performance? Excellent. Superb. So when's the, how long you got to go on your doctorate? Is it another um, year or two? I, Technically, um, not long enough, shall we say, but I think that's uh, <laughs> what anyone that has been through a doctor. Um, technically, I should be finished um, by January, February time. I'm probably looking more closer to this time next year. So we're just coming to the point now of finishing the literature review. I'm just in the process of taking my final um screening scores for the end of the season and then we have the intervention that will be coming up um towards the back end of this year and then there is a fourth study that um barry hasn't told me quite yet he's teased me with what what he's thinking we go down but i don't fully know where that that will be um at the moment and i'm sure there'll be plenty of questions around this for people to people want to ask you about just to round up, where can people, where's the best place for people to find you, ask you about what you're doing at Derby um, and the ISO stuff, doctorate work? What's the best place? Yeah, I, I traditionally always tell people to go. I feel like I've said traditional a hell of a lot. I'm sorry, people. Um, <laughs> my main media stream would be through Twitter. Um, I'm still a very big advocate of Twitter. I think that we should be sharing ideas and getting a, an understanding of the uh, the landscape that we're operating within. Um, so yeah, my Twitter's Luke Gatus. So L U K E G A T U S. Um, and as I say, you'll find me on there very frequently, um, talking to colleagues and, and people from the uh, across the industry and also from other industries. I think it gives us a great platform to to share ideas and, and to critique our own practice in a in an environment that pretty much people automatically get rather defensive about, but there's only so much you can um, you can convey in in limited characters. Absolutely, I think I, I absolutely echo that. If you follow the right people, if you know who to follow, you're um, you're onto an absolute winner because you can get some serious gems in there. For the wrong person, people, you're just going to get angry. Uh, absolutely, and I think that you need to. Distance yourself from those people because it can certainly, uh, people seem to have this strange liking to wanting to follow people that they don't like or that they really, really <laughs> disagree with, that they're not open-minded enough to question why that is what someone's doing. But yeah, I think that um, definitely there is, and this is what we'll say to a lot of the students that we teach um, at the University of Derby, that there has never been more free resources out there for young practitioners and experienced practitioners to to engage in and people have become far far more contactable like i remember years ago reaching out to des ryan which actually at the time i probably didn't understand the enormity of what i was reaching out for but like actually that that uh, 10 years ago that wasn't a possibility if they weren't within your own professional network um Therefore, if you can sift through a lot of the BS that's out there, as you say, refer to 
not like-minded people, but people that are at least able to cr critical in their own thinking and open-minded enough to to develop their ideas, then there there is so much out there that people can get their hands on. Absolutely agree. Well, thanks a lot for giving me your time, mate. Really appreciate it. It's always great to uh, to chat formally and informally, of course. Absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch and we'll chat soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks um, again, mate. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 242 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to a good friend of mine, Luke Jenkinson, for coming on this episode today. So really interesting chat about youth development and isometric training, which I hope you've absolutely loved. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Fatigue Science and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. I'd very much appreciate it if you did. And also, if you've got two minutes, please leave a rating and a review if you are an iTunes listener. So thank you very much for your support and I will chat to you next week.